Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with the core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Mary Quinn. Mary worked for the U.S. government for almost 30 years in a variety of roles, including as an intelligence officer for the Army, senior Southcom representative, chief of operations at the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, and deputy director of the National Media Exploitation Center at DIA. After leaving the government, Mary worked as a senior researcher for RAND Corporation and currently works as a consultant for Deloitte. Mary has also had a career outside of government service, working as a high school teacher, coach, and program director. She is also the vice chair of the Acquisition and Management Council at INSA. Mary, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. It's good to hear you and see you. Mary, you have led an incredibly diverse and interesting career. I would argue that each job shaped who you are as Mary the person and Mary the leader and mentor. You have taught, you have coached, served in the Army, been a senior executive, and worked in private sector. Can you share some of your favorite stories from some of those positions? Well, Megan, I do not want to keep you all here for forever, so I'll just go with <laughs> a, a few, so a select few. But one of the things that I, ha I have enjoyed um, in the course of my career and, and various and sundry jobs is sort of knocking people a little off their uh, presuppositions about the, what they know about people. And one of the first incidents that I thought was really funny was when I was um, a second lieutenant assigned to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And for any of you that have ever been to Fayetteville or Fort Bragg, North, North Carolina, know that it is a gigantic army post and it is very, very testosterone-y um, with the uh, 82nd Airborne and Special Forces. And I, I had the incident of being in several car accidents while I was there, none of which were caused by me because it was all some young soldier with his large truck or one with a Porsche that ran into my Ford Escort. But on one of these, one of these incidents, uh, um, the, the young man, he had a gigantic truck plowed into the side of my car and we get out and we start exchanging information and I pull out my ID card and he's like, oh my God, I hit an officer. I hit an officer. I'm in so much trouble. Oh my God. And he was just freaking out. And then the police come and the police officer, it was very nice, but he just said, now Mary, you need to go home, talk to your husband or maybe your boyfriend and have them call the insurance company and, and let the insurance company know this is what happened, okay? And make sure you tell him what to, what to do for you. And I'm thinking the one guy is terrified of me because I'm an army officer and the other guy just thinks that, you know, oh, my, my little girl brain can't fathom this. So it was just sort of funny as far as the not really working as far as uh, people's preconceived notions. Um, I, I, another one of my favorites was when I was working uh, at the Pentagon in the Army, and I was still pretty young, but I was a, I was a captain. 
we would deliver the morning briefings around. And uh, I remember taking him into a couple of the very senior people on the Army staff, and they said, hey, Captain Quinn, do you know this Captain Quinn that's been writing the articles for the Black Book? Because these are some really good articles. And I said, uh, I'm the Captain Quinn that's writing the articles. <laughs> they said, oh, wow, it never occurred to us. And I said, well, you know, that's one of the things we're trying to work on here. So, and, and that sort of continued. I think that I... I'm not the type of person that comes into a room and just immediately dominates the room just by my sheer physical presence. Um, you know, later on when I was a, a senior executive uh, and I was working at USDI, they were, it was in the Pentagon. So it was, again, it was sort of cramped for space. And I was sitting in the, the front office of my uh, boss, who was a deputy undersecretary. And people would come in and they'd ask, you know, is, uh, is John busy? And I said, well, yes, he's in a meeting. And they'd say, well, tell him that I, I went to go get coffee or could you, could you take my coat or, you know, basically assuming because I was a female sitting in the front office and this is in 2014 people uh, that I was uh, the secretary. And, uh, and then, so the best part of that would be, I would be, polite. I'm not going to be rude to them, but then we'd go in for John's next meeting, my boss's next meeting, and he'd say, okay, so I'm going to have my lead for this be Mary. And I'd walk into the office. They're like, oh, you're a SES? I was like, yes, I'm the director of this project. And they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Just think about that the next time that you make a supposition about what you know about people. And 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 not only is that, have I enjoyed that just from my end, um, and sometimes it got me a little, you know, riled up, but generally enjoyed it. But I think that it's been good for me also to look at other people that way and so not make suppositions about um, who they are. And that's been one of the things that's been good about my career is getting to see people that sort of what I didn't really anticipate what they are bringing to a discussion or bringing to an issue. And and, and you can't help it because you're human beings, you make sort of a judgment about somebody, but to be able to get knocked off that judgment and, and really see the person for what they can bring to the table, what they can offer. And I think that's important. And I think, you know, one of the areas, and I don't want to dwell too much on this because I know we have some other stuff to talk about, but I've heard a lot in groups with particularly younger women saying that, how do they get that presence? And I think that um, one of the things that I would say to them is that you need to be comfortable in who you are and comfortable in what you are bringing to a situation. And so if somebody's going to make a judgment about you, fine, prove them wrong. And then that that's the, the best way to sort of go forward is that they're going to do that. You can't, you can't control what somebody else does, but you can sort of um, knock them off their, their perceived notions and let them see there's, there's a lot of different uh, talent that's out there that you need to be listening to or that can bring a lot to some of the national security issues we deal with. So, and I think it's sometimes it's looking at it as a, a something fun and not negative, you know, mm -hmm. like I can't wait to knock you off your feet and you realize, you know, right. how smart I am, how smart I am, or um, I'm not what you think I am. So I kind of, I've always taken it as a, a challenge and a fun challenge instead of a negative challenge. Right. <laughs> and, and, and it is. And that, and that was one of the things that with my, with my boss at USDI, we did sort of set people up a little bit by, but because we knew because it had happened enough times that we'll say like, well, who's going to be running this? She is. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I asked you to hang up my coat. I'm like, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but I own you for the rest of this project. So. so, you know, has there ever been a point in your career where you looked around and you thought, wow, I can't believe I'm doing this? Several times. My first job after I, uh, after I taught high school and then I came back to 
um, work for, as a civilian intelligence officer. Um, I got to go on one of the investigations for the uh, missing in action and POWs from Vietnam. And I was the only woman on the trip and we were going to a bunch of different provinces and I, I stayed with one investigative team um, so that I could interview some of the witnesses um, uh, to, to try to, to try to find what had happened to servicemen who had been uh, lost or they were we had reasonably the Vietnamese government might know something about how to recover them and this was part of how we restored relations with Vietnam and when I got the uh, the army general who was in charge of the whole program was very, very uncomfortable having a civilian female intelligence officer as part of his investigations because he didn't want to, you know, freak out the uh, the Vietnamese or I don't know what it, what his whole issues were, but he had some issues. So he had gone through all of these these subterfuges to try to um, uh, cover up my identity, and we got to the first meeting with all the Vietnamese officials, and the general was standing on one end of the line, the rest of the team members, and then I was at the end, hoping that maybe they wouldn't notice there was a woman in this group, and the the Vietnamese officials came in, and they said, oh, hello, general, blah, 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 and then made a beeline to me, and they said, oh, and this is Miss Quinn from the Defense Intelligence Agency. (laughs) I love that. Oh, my God, he is going to die, but it was so funny, because it's just like, they're going to figure it out. But, the, but going through those investigations, it was it was fascinating. And I we were up with Hill Tribe people um, near the border between Vietnam and, and Laos. And these were some folks that had never seen, even with, you know, Soviet presence in Vietnam, they had not seen a Western woman, woman in a generation. So they just would follow me everywhere and like grab onto my skin because they were just amazed at um, like how big my arms were. <laughs> Never thought they were that big, but whatever. <laughs> so it was, uh, and, and it just was, it was strange. There was one time that I, I was trying to, not to be crass, but it was sort of funny that I, the guys had gone to a, uh, a site and I was hanging back with the, some of the Vietnamese team working on the reports. I needed to go to relieve myself. And so I was trying to discreetly walk off to the side to do this. And I literally had the entire village following me because they were just so fascinated by watching my every move. And finally, the Vietnamese team had to tell them, let her go just for a couple of minutes because she doesn't need to have everything be watched. It was, just, it was a bizarre but really cool um, experience to, to be there uh, on a more serious note. But another one that it was, I, was, I felt really fortunate, um, when I was the chief of operations uh, for DIA, we were traveling around to, or might have been in South Carolina, whatever. I was I was traveling to Chile and Argentina and Uruguay, and we were meeting in Argentina. And the defense minister, um, the deputy defense minister, had uh, his family had been um, they were killed during the uh, the uh, military juntas of Perón and whatever. And now with a more liberal government, they had installed him as the deputy defense minister. But he sort of had some, he was not a huge U.S. fan. And so our attaches had had difficulty getting through to him. And he, although he had gone to graduate school in the United States, he refused to speak English to any uh, American military that had meetings with him. Um, But we set up the meeting and they said, Mary, we want you to lead the conversation. I said, well, you know, my Spanish is not quite what yours is. And they said, we'll just start. The, the minister came in um, 
sat down, introduced himself in English, and then told me, he said, tell me about how you do your counter-narcotics operations with the police and the civil for authorities and military working together, because we don't really understand how to do that, what with our track record in, in Argentina. And I said, well, okay. And we, ha and we had a very good conversation, which I actually sort of queued up for the um, director of DIA, who was going to be visiting there within a couple of months for him to follow up with on some initiatives. But when we walked out, the attitude <laughs> said he's never been pleasant he's never spoken english um and he's never wanted to do any work with us but i think it was the fact that i was a female civilian representative of the united states government talking about national security issues that he sort of said this is somebody who i can relate to more and it was and it really was very helpful with the relationships that we built uh and i just and i just thought wow that was that took a turn that i didn't expect but it was it was an amazing opportunity and it was a really interesting um way the conversation went and it was, but it was being open to it and being prepared that he that he wanted to engage and he just wanted to do it on his terms. So um, there's just been a lot of cool opportunities like that that uh, I feel really fortunate that I've been able to do in in my you know the various curly cues and, and circuitous routes that I did for my job. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I always think is really important and I advise people on is that you need to keep an open mind about jobs and positions and opportunities because you don't know where they may necessarily lead and it may give you something really interesting to do that you just sort of didn't anticipate and you need to be ready for that um, and willing to take it on. So we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about um, leadership, Mary. And I wanted to ask, you know, at what point in your career did you start feeling secure in your leadership position and where you looked around the room and you kind of said, I know just as much as some of these guys do, if not more. It was a, I would say that it was a, a gradual process for me. Um, there were, there were some leadership, you know, attributed to me based on the uh, job that I had um, as a military officer, but then um, sort of recalibrating that a little bit as a civilian. Um, the first job that I came back to, I mentioned was the POWMIA, Special Office for POWMIA. And one of the, one of the things that we had to do, and I was, I was a very junior DIA analyst at the time, was we had to represent our findings on cases that have been investigated to a panel of uh, three three stars of all, all different services and have them make the determination of whether or not we could make a presumptive finding of death or whether or not we needed to continue to investigate. And I, I've got very personally engaged with the cases as I would read more about the individuals and their families and what had been done and what we knew about them up until the time that they were lost. And so I, I put a lot of uh, passion and effort into trying to get to a resolution. And I remember we had this one panel um, and we had the people that were that were leading the investigations um, that were based in Hawaii, and they they would present their take on no, we don't need to investigate this anymore. And then we, as the DIA analysts, would say uh, yes, we agree, or no, we don't agree. So the the folks that were doing the investigations didn't agree and thought that we'd done everything. We don't need to do anything more on this case. And I was arguing for why I thought we had leads to pursue, and we still had information that that was out there that we should try to get. And apparently. Uh, I became very, um, very engaged uh, as we were having the discussion because one of the one of the admirals said uh, that he was leaning towards saying we had closed everything, we had closed everything off on that case. We didn't need anything else to do. And he said, 
But after listening to the young woman's persuasive case, uh, I, I, I have to I have to agree with her. And my friends, as we as we left, they're all like, or you said the young ladies, the young lady's case. And as we're leaving, said, she's not so young and she's no lady. I said, shut up. <laughs> but that was sort of the beginning of saying that I, I feel confident enough that about what I'm talking about. And another key actually sort of preceded that was when I was in graduate school and I, I went to uh, I went to Stanford for graduate school and I constantly kept looking around like everybody here is smarter than me. I know everybody here is smarter than me and feeling very um, inundated with so much work. And my advisor who was teaching one of the classes that was a requisite class for all the new graduate students, he asked me one day, he said, why don't you ever volunteer in class? And I said, because everybody in this class is smarter than I am. And he said, Mary, I am reading everything that they all work, that they all write, to include all of your work. They are not smarter than you, and you have a lot of valid import points that they don't have, a perspective that they don't have, because a lot of them have come directly from graduates, from undergrad to graduate school, and I had been in the Army and done other things. They said, I think that you have some really important points that you need to bring out in class. Um, and that sort of gave me the protective coding that I felt comfortable being able to speak in class. And, and that was really important for me. Um, and it, 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 it helped me keep that in mind through, you know, future jobs, being able to um, argue my case and um, express a point of view and, and be okay that everybody didn't agree with it. And then say, that's okay. This is what I this is what I see based on my knowledge, my reading, whatever. And that was and that was important as an analyst and as an intelligence officer. Um, so it and that type of thing also gave me the confidence that when I after I worked at the POW MIA office for a number of years, it was it was a highly it was highly politicized because of the issue of restoring relations with Vietnam. And I said, I want to get back to doing a regular intelligence officer's job. And I switched to working collection management. And I got my initial, I actually got the job because my boss said, well, we know that you can work with difficult people because of some of the, the, the difficult people that I had to work with in the WMIA. So we want you to lead this working group. And I took over the working group and it was with a bunch of people working very technical human intel, human collection requirements. And I just approached that with, I'm going to look at this from the point of view of the person reading it. And if it doesn't make sense to me, then we need to relook how we present it. And we need to look for ways that we can consolidate and not overburden people with work. And I I felt because of, you know, the, the, the experience with the POWMIA office, with graduate school, I felt a little more empowered to try things because my ideas worked. And if they didn't, I was okay with somebody saying, this isn't going to work. But I didn't like the idea of, no, we're not going to do it because we've never done it before. So that became uh, sort of a stepping stool for me to expand my portfolio because I showed that I can streamline some of this work and take on some other things that had not been pursued. And all of that helped me get a little more confident because I was able to listen to a lot of different people and hone down on what we really seem to be asking, what we're really concerned about are these issues. And that turned to be a, a very helpful thing for me as a leader that I can't come in just and say, I have the solution unless I've listened to people and learned what the problems are that we're really trying to solve and see if there may be some places where people can negotiate because they actually are sort of talking about the same issue, but from a different vantage point. And I think that's been 
one of the things that has made me successful as a leader was uh, listening to people and being willing to take advice and recognize there's things that I know and things that I don't know. And I need to have somebody, I need to have people around me who know these other things because I, there's no way I can really be an expert on, you know, all the different topics that come across, but I can make a decision based on listening to other people. So that's one of the things. And I think, I know that I've, I've had this discussion with, uh, I remember vividly when I was being considered for senior executive that they asked for my coaching or my leadership style. And I said, well, it's coaching because it's letting people bring good ideas and see what's the best solution for us and not just be directive in terms of it. This is how it's going to be. I have all the knowledge and this is how it's going to be. So um, I just, I liked leaders like that. And I figured there's probably other people that like leaders like that. So to try to bring in what's good from the team rather than being directive all the time. I think that's the truest sign of confidence in a leader is that they recognize that, um, look, I'm confident in, in what I know and what I can do and how I can make decisions, but but I can't do it without having pe- you know, people around me know things that I don't know, and I need the support of them. So that's, that's really great. Um, do you feel that the confidence, you know, people who know you, um, know you as a confident woman, right? And I think people listening to this podcast will feel that as well. Do you feel that confidence was something that you always had within you? Or is, was there a certain point in your career when like the confidence kicked in? Um, no, I, I, I was, I felt pretty comfortable uh, w- w- on academic things. But in terms of being a leader, it, that, that was something that was definitely a quality that grew. <laughs> don't mean to continue to be scatological, but this was interesting that when we got, when I was working in the Army Operations Center, I was supposed to train the new um, officers that came in on, on how to do the briefings. And this, this one young man who was, or my colleague, he was, he was the same age as me, but he was, he was, he was a horrible, horrible briefer, wonderful person, horrible briefer. And he said, how do you do it? And I said, well, I go to the ladies room before all of the big, big meetings and throw up or feel like I'm going to throw up. And then I come and do the briefing. He said, I don't know that you really want to put that in a guide. And I said, oh, no. But that's reality. I said that I can, I can present this confident thing. And I said, but inside there's a, there's a lot of other stuff going on. And I think that I got, I got more confident. Um, but one of the areas that was important for me was always making sure that I was that I was prepared. And it, again, when I was uh, in the operation center, uh, there was a general officer who we briefed every day and he sort of took it upon himself to stump the jump and whoever were, whoever was briefing him, whether they were the ops people or the intel people, he just kept coming up with random questions and questions and questions. And I knew there was one topic that he was fixated on. So I studied up on that. Um, and so he did one of his stump the jump things where he just kept asking questions, asking questions, and I had answers for them all. And by the way, they were accurate answers. I had answers for them all. And I could see, I, I he's, he's just looking at me and I can see all the people in the rest of the room, they're like, oh my God, is this briefing ever going to end? But it was sort of, I, I earned my spurs uh, with him because I was able to, you know, I, I will come to this press, I will come to this place prepared. And as you were just saying that there are some areas where I am not going to jump in and share an opinion if I don't know what I'm talking about. And I think that that's part of the confidence also of saying that I know what I know and I know who to, and I know how to find experts on the things that I don't know. But when I come in and I have, and I have an opinion on it, 
it's going to be a well-formed, well-researched, because that is the one area that I think as a huge generalization, but I do see a difference between the way men approach things and women approach things. That women tend to be, if they're going to be stepping out of their comfort zone and be more um, vocal in meetings, they generally are going to be... I always recommend people that be as prepared as you can, because that's going to give you the, the confidence to speak rather than just sort of riffing and giving your opinion without anything to back that up, because that becomes apparent pretty quickly. And uh, so that's one of the areas for that's important for confidence. And, uh, and I know we've talked about this before, but it was interesting that uh, I, when I taught high school, I would get occasionally really nervous about being in front of people saying, I hate being in front of people. Why did I choose a career where I'm in front of people all day long? And it got to the point where I where I was comfortable. I still made sure that I was prepared, that I, you know, I could have taught material multiple times, but I made sure that I had that there just in case something happened. Uh, but then I would get nervous when I had to do the parent-teacher night, because when I had to speak in front of parents, and I just said, come on, <laughs> I'll make some progress here. Um and it, but it, but it took time. It was not, it was not something that happened overnight. It was just getting more comfortable talking about things and being more comfortable with people and presenting myself as I am. Yeah. Here's the things that, again, here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. Here's where you can help me. And uh, so it sounds like, you know, preparation is, is one of those things, right? Like you're confident in what you know, but also being prepared in things that you don't know, you know, kind of helps with that confidence. You right. know, you are such a great coach and mentor. And I wonder, you know, what what else would you tell people who are struggling to feel secure and settled in their professional identity and, and you know, trying to gain that confidence? One thing that's sort of basic, but but you can sort of lose track of it sometimes is that listen to the people who believe in you. Because there's there's people that are believing you and they are not gonna they are gonna want you to be successful. And you and you can you need to sort of suss that out because sometimes there's people who don't want you to be successful and you need to sort of because I've I've had I've I've had both, but I got a better uh, ability to figure out this person is trying to help me be successful. So what are they saying to me? And if they, and this was, uh, I, I found this with both students that I would recommend them for projects or uh, schools that they should apply to. And then with the folks that work for me for DIA that, that I would recommend them uh, again for projects or things that they would be like, I don't know whether or not I can do that. And I said, well, I think that you can because I observe you in the context of everybody else. So I see you among your peers and I, and I, and I believe you have the capability and I will be there for you to help you if there's any questions. And one of the other ways that I've done that besides the direct beforehand is in meetings when I know that someone is a little reticent about speaking up and I now have, you know, gotten over that hurdle for myself that I that I will certainly speak up in a meeting, but I will say, well, I think that's a very interesting point. And I was just talking to Megan or I was just talking to Katie and they had an interesting observation. So sort of tee things up for people so that they know that I've, I've given them the, the security of if, if they feel a little flustered, I'm still there to follow up, uh, but setting them up for success. And that's, I think that's hugely important to set the, set people up for success. So did you um, have, can you give us an example of, I, I mean, I think that's, that's amazing. And that's a sign of a great leader. Can you, you know, having the support, you know, of someone in your corner kind of championing you, could you give us, you know, maybe an example of who, do, who did that for you, that kind of you, you um, modeled your leadership style after? Um, I, I, a couple of people and they, and they were sort of different in their leadership approaches, but I took from them things that would fit well for me. 
Uh, my first boss in the army, I was totally intimidated by, uh, and he turned out that he was a wonderful, wonderful man. And he he was interested in helping me become a good leader. So we would have lots of conversations and he'd ask me about, you know, different scenarios and how would I, what would I do in this scenario? And just, I learned so much just from talking to him and that one, and he, and he said, he said the, the famous thing, which I always hide in my mind, he said, you know, when you're the leader, you, you supposedly, the people that work for you are thinking that, you know, you just go home, you never have to sit in traffic. You never have to have any of these problems of the plumbing ba- going bad. Um, you don't have problems with your family. You just sort of glide into the office and make these decisions and everything is easy. And he said, and to a certain extent, it's okay to perpetuate that idea because they don't necessarily want to see you, you know, down rustling in the mud with them. And but it, and it was more that model the behavior that that you sort of want to see and make but make people feel comfortable enough that they can be themselves in the office um, because you're you know not coming in and showing every mood that you have and being you know so you sort of are, are calm so you create an environment where they can feel a little calmer that we're not we're not adding to their anxiety um, and he, he had some he had some very strong standards about what he expected of me and that was okay because it, it let me know exactly what I was supposed to do. And uh, and if I wasn't meeting it, that he would let me know, not in a mean way, but just, you know, I know that you can do, I know that you can do better. I remember, we used to have to, again, this is at Fort Bragg, and we'd have to, we always had to run because it's the Army. And we he ran across me one time, we were running, I was out on like the Special Forces course. It was a nice run through the woods. So it was, uh, and he, he passed me running. He said to me the next day, he's like, you run like a jock. This was his ultimate, ultimate, you know, compliment. <laughs> and he said, did you play sports? And I said, yes, I did. He said, I played field hockey in college. And he said, oh, it's great, great. But it was sort of like, that was the, the best thing for him so that I could, I could, you know, represent the women in the army uh, and uh, be, be who I was uh, as a, as a uh, good representation and meet his standards. So it was, it was funny. And then sort of flash forward, just as an aside, when I got assigned to the Pentagon in the army, and I was still doing his thing about like maxing every test. Had a couple of the colonels say, "You know, I don't brag anymore. You don't need to do that." <laughs> it was so in my brain. Um, and then, you know, when I was working uh, at DIA before I was promoted, uh, there were a number of senior women leaders who I looked to because I saw how they conducted themselves um, and people listened to them and they were um, just really effective leaders and really good at managing stuff. So sort of taking things from them. Um, and one of them is uh, is is Tish Long. Um, and she had one of the, and this gets back to one of my earlier points, when I had been at Southcom and I'd been there for four years and I said, I think it's time for me to come back from Miami. Um, and so I was talking to her on the phone about the job that she wanted me to take. And she said, I'd like you to be the chief of operations. And I said, okay. <laughs> she said, what do you think about that? I said, well, there's an awful lot of testosterone running around in that organization. And she said, and that's why I want you to go there. And I said, okay. And I called somebody else and I said, do you think I can really do this? They said, if Tish asks you to do that, then she thinks you can do it. So you can do it. And it turned out in a lot of ways. I mean, it wasn't all, you know, 
peaches and cream, but in a lot of ways it was it was a great job because I was able to really change the dynamics of the organization and it went from being and it, and it had had some problems with being a pretty hostile workplace um, to being a place where people enjoyed their work and we were we were successful uh, but it was one that I was like I'm glad you got that confidence because I'm not so sure <laughs> but and so I think that that's important to again to, to to take the the challenge when somebody gives you that challenge and say okay um, if you think that I can do it. And that's, so that's why I wanted to model that with, with people that work for me to say, I had somebody that had the confidence in me to say that I could do this job. And so I'd like to do that to turn around for, for other people. Cause I think that's, I think that's your responsibility as a leader. So, so that's a good segue to what I wanted to ask you next. And, you know, what I've always loved about you is that you are a true mentor in every sense of the word. You mentor those in your community, you mentor those in this community of the IC and outside in, you know, in the civilian community. So when people come to you for mentorship on becoming a leader, what advice uh, do you have that might be unique from others in the community, what they might say? One of the things, and I think I came to this realization probably mid-career, but I, and it's interesting because it, it sort of came up uh, as, a, as a coach because I coached high school sports for a long time. And I had a friend that I coached with who was always saying like, oh, we need to be more like, you know, Bob, we need to be more like Tom because, you know, they make kids puke and they make them cry. And I just was like, there's a way that you can be, because I am intensely competitive. There is no doubt that I'm intensely competitive, but there's a way that you can do that without making people hate the sport. Um, and and I think that that's, that's hugely important. And it's the same thing with, you know, the only way to be a leader is to come in the first day and just, you know, here's our five points. These are the five things we're going to do, blah, blah, blah. And again, it was, it was actually a conversation that I heard from Tish and Mary Legere um, at DIA. And they were talking about, they like to observe an organization before they make the decision about this is what we need to change because they want to see maybe some of the stuff is working and I just need to keep that going and that flow. But when you come in, you know, all all hair on fire, they're going to make these big changes. I don't think that's, that doesn't work for me because I would rather observe and see what's working and see how to be successful. And one of the books that I really, really like and, ha- and strongly recommend because the intelligence community has a fair number of introverts and that's okay. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's a good thing, but to, there's sort of a misconception, I think sometimes that introverts can't be successful leaders. And so it's a book, um, Quiet by Susan Cain, and she talks about how successful introverts, and, and she gives lots of different examples of introverts that are very successful leaders. And one of the reasons why is that because they're not, they don't come in broadcasting initially, they're listening. And when they're listening, they can be more attuned to uh, things that are, again, things that are going well, things that are not going well, and ways that you can change that. And that you need to, so it's be who you are as a leader and that model will work. There is not a one size fits all type of model for a leader. And people get into trouble when they try to be who, when they try to be something that they think they're supposed to be. Um, and I've, and so that's a lot of different uh, leadership books. Another book that I read, which I thought was really interesting was um, The Fourth Star and it compared um, four army four stars um, and their careers and how they had very distinctly different personalities all of them very successful, but very distinctly different personalities. So I think that one of the things that I I try to encourage people, and I, because I know that it's been important for me, is figure out what works so you can stay true to yourself. Because if you keep trying to be something that you're not, it just, it doesn't when, it doesn't end well for anybody, that you're frustrated. um, It's, 
you pro it's not a model that fits well on you. And so you need to inhabit what, what works for you and what's important for you. Also, <laughs> I know that I would love to, and as you and I have done on many occasions, I would love to just chat, 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 chat. And sometimes I need to, so I always try to get somebody that works with me as either my deputy, my assistant or whatever, who is very different personality than me um, in terms of being very much um, focused on deadlines, specifics and things like that to sort of rein me in because I know that's what I need. And I think that, you know, being this, being self-aware uh, and knowing what you need to sort of make you a complete package as a leader is a very important part of uh, leading. And so I tell people, you know, don't try to be who you're not, but look for look for people who can sort of fill in the other parts of the picture for you. That was such a great answer. I, I That's probably one of the best answers I've heard. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I, we end each episode with the same question. <laughs> and in keeping with the name of this podcast, Iron Butterfly, um, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Well, I struggled with this for a bit going through as I was driving around thinking of different answers. And finally, I came up with, wait for it, Q. I had the, the Q. When I, when I was at, when I was at Southcon, there was this group of um, mid-level officers and, and me and we were the ones that sort of got a lot of stuff done, a lot of stuff done, because we just sort of said, what do we need to be doing? And I was able to set them up by knowing who to tap into in the intelligence community, who to tap into into DIA, and setting them up for success. They were like, Q, you've done it again. Oh. And I was thinking about that, and I was like, so it is sort of like James Bond's Q. And now that they brought Q back, um, so I, I would like to be Q, the person that is Maybe the force behind the screen, but making sure that the people that, that can be successful by knowing just the right gadget that they need, right, just the right uh, connections that need to be made and helping, helping the overall mission be successful. You know, not out there at the casino with my martini, but <laughs> <laughs> making, it, making it happen anyway. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Mary, this has been so fun. I always love chatting with you, but now our listeners get to get a little piece of you. And I, I'm so happy that they did. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your stories and your life in the IC. Well, thank you all very much. And, and I really appreciate this because I think this is, it's hugely important and it's a uh, much more enjoyable way, I think, for people to digest the information. So I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Mary. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.